Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Hebrews chapter 1. God. What a great way to begin a book. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, look at this, whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So that means he's the creator. Who, being the brightness of his glory, the express, the exact copy of the image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself, he did all on his own, purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, stop there if you would for just a moment. The writer is making it very clear. The prophets were great, they were great. But Jesus is better. You see, better, if you remember, is the entire theme of the book of Hebrews. In other words, why would you leave Jesus for anything? What else is better than Jesus? He is so much better. A temporary fix? That's better? It'll be over. You'll have to do it again. I mean, to cheat on your wife? Oh, all that'll do will cause problems to leave the church and find friends in the world. God bless you. Let me tell you something. Why would you leave when Jesus is so much better, especially when it comes what man has to say? How does the creature, how does the creature describe the creator? And let me tell you, prophets did a great job. They did a great job, but even they couldn't handle the whole picture. That's why God only gave them bits and pieces, and we've got to put all those pieces together like a puzzle to find Jesus. They were great, but Jesus is greater. And we have to remember that the writer is writing to second-generation Christians. He's writing to second-generation Christians. They heard from the apostles. They didn't see Jesus. They heard from the apostles. As a second-generation believer, I thought Jesus was coming back. That's why I gave my life to the Lord, to get out of this Roman Empire. I thought Jesus was coming back. And they're getting pressure from their family, and they're getting pressure from their culture. Listen, you tried the Jesus thing. He's not coming back. Just come back to Judaism. Oy vey. Why? Listen, we love you. Celebrate Hanukkah with us. Give up the whole Christmas thing. Come on. Just come back. You see, this group was undergoing persecution, but Jesus knew they would. Take a look at Matthew 13. He actually gave a story. Take a look at the screen. But he received the seed on stony places. This is he who hears the word. So this is book of Hebrews. They heard it from someone else and immediately receives it with joy. Oh, praise the Lord, I'm saved. Yet he's got no root in himself. He never came to church, didn't have any fellowship. But he endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. The Holy Spirit knew that the book of Hebrews was going to be written. 
That's why Jesus spoke this story in Matthew chapter 13. He knew that there would be people that would drift away from the faith because of persecution. This group, this second generation group, they're asking, is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth it? I mean, everyone's telling me he's not coming back. I mean, my family is saying, just give up this whole Christian thing and come back to Judaism. I mean, everyone, we're undergoing persecution. I mean, is Jesus really worth it? But in those first three verses, we've got to understand the prophets were great. Man was great. But Jesus, the God-man, is so much greater than man. Don't call Jesus simply a man. Oh, yes, he was a man, but he was God. Don't just say that Jesus was so great and when he gave out the, uh, the fish, everyone else thought to themselves, well, listen, he's given his fish, so I'll give my fish. And that was the great miracle everybody decided to share. Don't make Jesus just a philosopher. Don't make him just a man. He's so much more than man. In fact, the prophets, all of them pointed to Jesus. They're not better than Jesus. They were pointing to the better. Jesus is greater than any man. Why would you listen to what man has to say over what Jesus has to say? Why would you? Jesus is the son. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the creator. And he ends this section by introducing for us the next session that we'll talk about tonight. Look at verse 4. Having become so much better than the angels. Now we'll underline that even next week. As by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. I need to let you know something. Jesus is better than angels. Now let me tell you, angels are great. They are great. They are real. And they're more real than the person sitting next to you. But they're spirit. Angels are great. But Jesus is better. Now you might think, of course we know that angels are great, but Jesus is better. But we, I want us to, you to understand what's happening in the first century church. You see, the Jews believed that angels appeared to man as a medium of God's power and will to execute his plan on earth. They didn't actually believe that they should be worshipped, but something happened in their history. In fact, if you read the Apocrypha, like First and Second Maccabees, you can actually read that when the Maccabees were trying to defeat the Greeks, so Antiochus Epiphanes and Epiphanes and all these guys that had invaded into Jerusalem, when they did that, they called on the angel that helped the Jews defeat Sennacherib and killed 185,000 Assyrians. Syrians overnight. So they were calling on that angel. They were praying to that angel, the way that you helped us against the Assyrians, would you help us now against the Greeks? Don't be so hard on the Jews praying to angels. Because early Christians had developed the same kind of theology. Jesus must be busy. So he's not answering my prayer, so I'm going to talk to Michael. I mean, he's pretty strong. And Gabriel, I mean, he talks to God, talked to Mary. He must want to talk to me. And they started talking to angels. Now, you might go, that is so silly. It's still happening today. It's still happening today. It's happening in Roman Catholicism. There are three main angels. There is Michael, there is Gabriel, and there is Raphael. 
Raphael and Catholic dogma. Listen carefully. We pray to them because we believe God has entrusted them with a mission to minister to us. I was with a good friend of mine. And she lost her keys. And all of a sudden, she started saying, St. Joseph, St. Joseph, help me find my keys. And I looked at her and I go, who is St. Joseph? And she goes, well, he's the one that helps us find our keys. I'd like to know St. Joseph. Where is he? Oh, no, he's not here. Well, why are you talking to him? Well, he's in heaven with God, and he'll go to God for me. Why would you go to Joseph when you could go straight to Jesus? I would go, oh, Jesus, Jesus, come out, come out wherever you are. I mean, I mean, it's like, <laughs> then I was with this, my, my aunt, and she started talking to Raphael. Raphael, please heal me. I go, who's Raphael? <laughs> Raphael is Raphi, which is Jehovah. Raphael, he heals, and that angel goes to God and asks for you. Why would you talk to Raphael when you could talk straight to Jesus? It exists in the church today. It's exactly what happens in the church today. Now, sorry, my computer just turned off on me. There we go. All right, it's back. Praise the Lord. The enemy's fighting us today. But there are two kinds of angels that I want to remind you of before you start praying to them. There are those who reside in heaven, and there are those who reside in hell. Two kinds of angels. Ones that live in heaven and ones that fell from heaven. Now, the impact of fallen angels, we call them demons, the impact of fallen angels in the world today stretches into every religion that compares itself to Christianity or opposes Christianity. From the revelations of Muhammad, and trust me, I have never been more passionate about reaching Muslims since I've come back from Iran. I'm sorry, I wasn't in Iran, ministering to people in Iran. I've never been more passionate about it than recognizing the way a fallen angel infiltrates an entire culture of people. But even in our own Christianity, don't forget Moroni, who showed up to Joseph Smith and gave him another gospel. We call it Mormonism. Now let me tell you Galatians chapter 1. You see, this is so applicable for us today. Galatians chapter 1, Paul says this in verse 6, I marvel you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of of Christ. St. Joseph, J. Joseph, come out, come out wherever you are. To a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Did you read that word? Pervert it. But even if we, or an angel, Joseph Smith, from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we preach to you, let him be accursed. Wow! So when Moroni showed up to Joseph Smith and gave him another gospel, the Holy Spirit knew that would happen. Let him be accursed. So it's wise for us to know this truth because the writer doesn't want us to drift 
away. Look again, Hebrews 1.4, he's so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Jesus is better than angels. Why would you go to angels when you can go directly to Jesus? Jesus has by inheritance. Did you hear that? And maybe you'll underline that in your Bible. He has by inheritance. That means he's family. He inherited, obtained a more excellent name. Now, I need to help you understand the word name in first century world. A name is what someone is known for, not their title. Let me give you an example. My name, excuse me, my title is Chet. That's my title. What you know me for, your favorite pastor, What you know me for is my name. So if you know me as grumpy, that's my name. If you know me as happy, that's my name. If you know me as sleepy, if you know me as dopey, and I could go down the list. But if what you know me as would be my name. Chet is just my title. How I define myself over the course of the history of my life is my name. So a name is very important and very important to God. And he's obtained a name. And the author is going to tell us his name. He's the son. He's the king. He's the creator. And he's going to get across the point. The angels have no problem with Jesus being the son, the king, and the creator. Even the demons believe it. In James chapter 2, verse 19, it's a bonus verse. You can write it down. James chapter 2, 19, the Bible says, even the demons believe that he's king and creator and son, and they shake. They shake. When Jesus comes on the scene, they shake. That's a big deal. So angels in heaven and fallen angels in hell They all have no issue with the fact he's the son, the king, and the creator. They just know it. As a matter of fact, that's his name. Now let's pick it up. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you? And again, okay, so what did he say? I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, verse 6. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Our first point, maybe you'll write it down. Jesus is the son. There's his name. And the angels worship the son. Now I need to let you know something. No angel would worship a creature. No angel would worship a creature. In fact, those that did, got kicked out of heaven. When Lucifer wanted to establish himself on the throne of God, those that worshipped him, the creature, got kicked out of heaven because they didn't worship the creator and there's no salvation available for angels. And the Bible says a third of them got kicked out for for worshiping Satan. Now, let me tell you something. We don't know how many angels there are. We don't know how many angels there were, but there's nothing for us to worry about. Let me tell you why. We still outnumber hell two to one, just angel count. We still outnumber. And listen to this, God, like we got God. 
So I don't know why we're so worried about all the demons that we seem to be worried about. Why anxiety, fear fills our heart when we outnumber two to one. I'm going to tell you why we do. Because he comes at us like a roaring lion. Have you ever been standing there and a roaring lion approaches you? Has that ever happened to you? Let me tell you something. It's scary. It is scary. And sometimes what the Lord will do is let him run right up to you. You ever see those movies where the, 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 like the National Geographic, where it's like they run at the line runs after him and the hunter is like standing, oh, what do I do? And then all of a sudden he takes a knife out and when the lion leaps on him, he kind of puts it in his heart and the lion kind of like dies on him. For some reason, the Lord allows that lion to prowl around because he wants to prove to us how faithful he is to put out the lion when he's attacking us. All we have to do is stand. All we have to do is resist him. All we have to do is fight our faith and trust in God to bring down the lion. And he's already has. When Jesus went to the cross, he made a spectacle of that lion. And let me tell you why. Because Satan is the lion of the world, but Jesus is the lion of Judah. He's the lion of Judah. So we've got nothing to worry about. And he says in verse 4, he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name. Of course he did. He's the son of God. And the son gets the inheritance of the name, not the servants. And the angel knows this. Let me tell you something. You wouldn't go to someone's house and walk in for dinner, and if we had servants, and see the servant, and give the servant more honor than the master's son. You just wouldn't do it. You would greet the son, you'd greet the master, and then maybe you would greet the servants. No one would walk into a house and go, oh, the servant, oh, thank you for having me over. I'm so grateful. No, you would go to the son because he's got the name. It'd be like tasting in and out, and choosing to go back to McDonald's. It just doesn't make sense. <laughs> Can I get an amen? Yeah. Now, some of you are leaving the church because you like McDonald's. <laughs> Someone actually raised their hand. And I love you, so I know you're not leaving. All right. Paul defines for us a term. And I think we need to define it. Go back with me to verse 5. He's the son. You're my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, that has confused a lot of Christians. In fact, it started a whole religion called Jehovah's Witness. This doesn't mean that Jesus was born. It doesn't mean that Jesus was born. You see, Mormons believe that he was created and he's the brother of Lucifer. The Lucifer and that Jesus are brothers. Lucifer just went one way, Jesus went the other. That's Mormon belief. In fact, in verse 6, take a look at verse 6. He mentions it again, but when he again, so that means at his second coming, brings the firstborn into the world. Now let's understand this firstborn into the world. This is a Jewish phrase. It speaks of position in the first century, and it speaks of privilege, because the firstborn inherited the greater blessing. And every Jew reading this would have understand this. It would be like me saying, listen, it'd be like me saying, hamburgers are the bread and butter of In-N-Out. 
Now, I've been out in the country for a long time, so you can imagine I am desperate for in and out So if you get hungry at the end of this, don't worry about it. I'll meet you there. It's right down the street, okay? If I say that hamburgers are the bread and butter of in and out every one American knows exactly what I'm talking about. That hamburgers is the main thing that they do at in and out so when a Jew would read the firstborn, they knew exactly what the writer was talking about. He was talking about privilege, and he was talking about position. Paul would use it again. Take a look. Colossians chapter 1. Paul would use this idea of the begotten and the firstborn. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. So he's got the privilege and the position over all creation. He's the head of the body, the church, who's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he had the privilege to be the first resurrected. He holds that position that in all things, he may have the preeminence. Because he was the first to rise from the dead, he is just first. And Paul clarifies what the word begotten means. You'll see it on the screen. It's Acts chapter 13, verse 33. Today I have begotten you, Paul defines it. God has fulfilled this for us in their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. When the Bible says, today I have begotten you, Paul is helping us understand it happened at the resurrection. At the resurrection, when Jesus rose from the dead, that is the begotten of Jesus, that he was the firstborn from the dead, that God anointed him to be the God-man for the rest of eternity, the King of kings, the Son of God. Now, let me explain it like this. Let's back up for just a moment to understand this because it doesn't mean that Jesus was born. It means at the resurrection, he was begotten the position and the privilege. Jesus was God from eternity past. We're gonna see that in just a moment. He was God from eternity past. He always was. There was never a time that it was the father and then he goes, okay, I'd like to have Jesus now. He always was. He humbled himself as God According to Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself and he became a man. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews is going to say he became a little lower than the angels. And that was the writer's way of saying he became a man. He humbled himself. And then he glorified the Father by doing what the Father told him to do. Take a look at John 17, 1 on the screen. He said this, Jesus spoke these words lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father. Now, I, so I need to stop here for just a moment. There was some Sunday school teacher somewhere who her children was not paying attention in Sunday school. So she figured out a way to get everyone to be quiet when she prayed. Everyone, fold your hands, close your eyes, and bow your heads. But I want you to see how Jesus prayed. He lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, I don't know if you notice, but when I pray, my eyes are watching and I'm looking. And someone came up to me and goes, why are you staring at us when you pray? And you know what I said to him? How do you know? (laughs) 
And they said, touche. <laughs> now, do you know what touche means? Of course you do. You're an American. The same way that you would have known about firstborn. It means privilege. It means position. And so he says, Father, the hours come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. And now, O oh Father, verse 5, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He was always God. He humbled himself, and now he's glorifying God, and God will glorify him. The resurrection was the begotten. Take a look at Romans chapter 1, verse 4. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness because of or by the resurrection from the dead. Today, at the resurrection, I have begotten you. It proved his position. It proves he's the firstborn. It proves he has the privilege. No angel can claim a resurrection. No angel can claim to be the son of God. Now, this is where the Jehovah's Witnesses step in. Aha! (laughs) I got a verse for you. You do? Oh, yes, I do. Turn with me to Psalm 82, Pastor Chet, and I'm going to prove to you that Jesus is an angel. Really? Okay, Mr. Jehovah's Witness, I'd love to go to Psalm chapter 82 with you. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 8. They are trained to take you to Psalm 82. Okay, take a look. Psalm 82. You see, Jehovah's Witness believe, as you're turning there, that Jesus is a created being. It puts him on the same par with Michael, who's a created being. So they'll always come to Psalm 82 to try to prove this. Now take a look at Psalm 82, verse 1. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. There it is. Let me tell you what's happening. When my kids were all living in the house, I would call family meetings. And all the kids were like whispering on the way down the stairs. What's he going to talk about? They always thought it was bad. But sometimes I wanted to tell them where we were going for vacation. But they always thought like, what did we do? We're all in trouble. And they would all try to like, Who's, who did it? Who, who's, you know? But I was just having a family meeting. And I wanted to download. That's all God's doing. God is having a family meeting. And I want you to see who's meeting with. He's judging among the gods. Interesting word, that word. It's the word Elohim. You remember in England? Sorry, you have no idea. Remember in England like you've ever, like you've been there. Sorry about that. Maybe you have been. God bless you, okay? But in it, sorry. Do you guys remember when we came over on the Mayflower? No, okay. In England, let me start that way. I'm from the Bahamas, so we know English culture very, very well. God saved the queen, now God saved the king. So in England, The noble people were given the name lords, the house of lords, okay? That's the idea. This word was an honorable name given to the leader. It was the house of lords. God is basically having a meeting with parliament as the king. He's basically having a meeting with parliament as the king. Now take a look, verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly? It's obvious he's not talking to angels. What the Jehovah's Witness will say is, you see, there's many gods. 
And Jesus is one of them. And Jesus is one of the angels. Even God, right here in Psalm 82. Take a look. How long will you judge unjustly? Show partiality in the wicked. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. It's obvious that God is meeting with human leaders, telling them how to lead other humans. It's obvious in the text. Deliver the poor and the needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They don't know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you're gods. You're the leaders. And all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like the one of the princes. Arise, O God. Judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. God's having a family meeting with the leaders. It's obvious in the text. Let me prove it to you in Exodus chapter 22. He's referring to the leaders. If the thief, now this was a law, if the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges, key word, to see whether he has put his hand in his neighbor's goods. For any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, for any kind of lost thing, which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the Elohim. Same word, the judges. And whoever the Elohim judges, condemned shall pay double to his neighbor. This word judges is the same word translated in Psalm 82, God's. He's meeting with the house of lords. He's meeting with the leaders. Psalm 82 does not prove Jehovah's Witness theology. It's clear in the text that God's holding a meeting with leaders. Go back with me to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. Take a look what God commands the angels to do to the Son in verse 6. Let the angels of God Worship him. Do you remember when Lucifer tried to set himself up to be worshipped? What did God do? Kicked him out. God would never tell the angels to worship another angel. And the angels got no problem with it. They have no problem worshipping. In fact, when he first came, they announced to the angels and then they sang praises to God. Glory to God in the highest. They worshipped Jesus. And the Bible says here in verse 6, but when he again, so at his second coming, they're going to worship him again because they've already worshipped him before and they've been worshipping him since he was created. Jesus is the son and the angels worship him. Point number two, let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 1 verse 7. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? And maybe you'll circle the word, his ministers a flame of fire. But, clear word of contrast, to the Son, he says, your throne, this is God speaking to Jesus, your throne, look what God the Father calls Jesus, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, so your Father, has anointed you, because you've got the inheritance, with the oil of gladness more than anyone else in heaven, more than your companions. Maybe you'll take it as a note, point number two. Jesus is the king, and the angels work for him. 
It's not the other way around. You don't go St. Joseph, St. Joseph, and the angels go, hey, Jesus, we got an issue over here. Could you deal with it? It's just not the way it works. Jesus is the king. The angels work for him. They minister to him. Look at verse 7. I ask you to consider underlining it in your Bible. Look at verse 7. Who makes his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Remember, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and he didn't eat. Then the devil, that little devil, he comes to Jesus and he starts tempting him. Jesus fought him with the word of God. But after the experience, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, the angels ministered to Jesus. Because Jesus is the greater. And then do you remember in Luke chapter 22, there is Jesus. He is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is weeping and drops of blood are breaking from his forehead and dropping on the ground. That's how intense he is in prayer. And you know what the Bible says in Luke 22, verse 43? The angels minister to him. Because that's their job. Angels minister before the throne. They do not sit on the throne. In Isaiah chapter 6, when the king Uzziah died, the Bible says that Isaiah was caught up into the throne room. And you know what he saw? Angels worshiping God, not angels on the throne. Holy, 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 Father, Son, Holy Spirit, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Only Lucifer wanted to sit on the throne and Lucifer got kicked out. Angels are great, but, look at verse 8, look at verse 8, but to the Son, clear comparison, but to the Son, clearly making a contrast, your throne, O God. Pay close attention to that. Your throne, O God. God the Father calls Jesus God and then says to him, your thrones forever and ever. He gives them the attribute, you're eternal. God the Father's eternal, Jesus is eternal. He says a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. In other words, what he's saying, look again, you've loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. He's righteous. And the evidence of the righteousness of Jesus, he was able to be on the earth without sin. How many of you are able to do that? How many of you today, how many of you today were able to not sin today? Just today. How many of you, you woke up in the morning and at least for like an hour, you didn't sin? (laughs) Wow! Jesus went 30 Three years without sin. Please don't get used to that. Because I want you to try tomorrow for an hour. And now that I've asked you to try, let me tell you, the devil's going to come at you. 
He's righteous, and the evidence of his righteousness and his rule of righteousness is he lived the sinless life. And at the ascension, God anointed him king. He appointed him the heir of all things. Let me tell you why Jesus did all of this. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Take a look at verse 9. With the oil of gladness more than your companions. You've got more joy in heaven than any angel or any of the beings in heaven because you're the only son. And all of heaven is joyful. That's what he's saying. Heaven is a joyful place, but you've got more joy because you're the anointed one. Look what Peter said. Peter, who struggled more than any of the other disciples. Look what Peter said. Who has gone into heaven, Jesus, and is at the right hand of God, Angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Jesus is the king. The angels work for him. Peter didn't make this up on his own. You know where first Peter came from? Jesus Christ University. It lasted 40 days. After the resurrection, Jesus was on the earth for 40 days. He taught the disciples. And out of Jesus Christ University, Peter comes up with this. He got this from Jesus, that he's the king. He saw the resurrection, and he realized that Jesus is the king, and he realized everyone is subject to him. The angels are not subject, excuse me, Jesus is not subject to the angels. See, sometimes, let me explain it like this. I love you guys. Now, let me say with this illustration, I love you. I love all of you. Did you hear that? Okay, great. Thank you, Jocelyn. I appreciate that support. Sometimes I find that when people want something in the church, they bypass everybody and come straight to me. You know why? I'm the one that makes the decision. They'll bypass the volunteers. They will bypass the leaders. They'll bypass the staff. Have Pastor Chet call me. Well, can Pastor Pat call you? No. Only Pastor Chet. Well, would you mind if Pastor Pat called you? Yes, I would. Because I have an idea for the church, and I know Pastor Chet is the one that will make the decision. So I'm just going to... Let me tell you something. Pastor Pat is hurt, okay? But I get it. I get it. I'm the one that's going to make the decision. Now, I know the comparison is weak, because I'm not comparing myself to Jesus. I'm comparing the leadership. Why would you go to angels when you have access to call Jesus anytime you want? That's what he's trying to tell the church. Why would you go to any other heavenly being when you've got Jesus as your king? Let me tell you something. Jesus is the king. The angels work for him. Thirdly, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. Here's our final point, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. Now, when I say final point, we've only been a half hour in. No, I still got time, Okay. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. Some of you are like, oh my goodness, he's ending early. Praise the Lord. We'll go to in and out. (laughs) And, and you, Lord, in the beginning, speaking to Jesus, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Angels were created by God, by Jesus. They will perish, but you remain. 
They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You'll fold them up and they'll be changed. But you're the same. And your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? This is a little sarcasm here. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? If you're taking, point, if you're taking notes, point number three. Jesus is the creator and the angels are his creation. God has never asked an angel, hey, why don't you come and sit right here next to me? Why don't you have the, just enjoy the chair for a little while. You know, come on, Gabriel, sit on down. No, no, that chair belongs to Jesus and only Jesus. He's never said to an angel, the only angel that tried to take the chair got kicked out of heaven. And a third of the angels that worshiped that angel got kicked out as well. He only calls the son to sit at his right hand. Now the world's getting old, isn't it? It's amazing, no matter how much I work out. As I'm getting older and I'm waving, this is waving as well. (laughs) Amen? You didn't have to agree. None of you had to agree, okay? And I don't care how much you stretch. And I don't care how much work you get done. You are going to take a last breath. It just will happen. Ten out of ten of us, unless Jesus comes again. I don't care how much. I was in the airport the other day. I I felt sorry for this woman. She had to be 85 years old. She had to be 85 years old. She couldn't even talk. She was so stretched in her face. And her lips were so big. And you knew she was 85 because when she stretched out her hand, it was like she was 85. She was 85. And I've got the gift of discernment, so I know she was 85. Her face looked like she was 16. She couldn't even talk. It was like, how are you? I wanted to ask her, does it hurt? Now you might, listen. It's going to happen. We are going to wrinkle. We are going to get old. The world's infected with sin and the Bible knows it and the world itself is going to roll up and it's going to die. Now, God will not. Though the world is getting old, and I don't know how old it is, Probably a little over 6,000 years. I don't know how old it is exactly, but a little over 6,000 years. Like everything because of sin, it's going to die. And what God's going to do, we call it the tribulation. He's going to conquer all the enemies of Jesus. He's going to make them his footstool. And Jesus will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is God, man. And he is the same yesterday, he's the same today, and he's the same forever. Can you imagine looking like you're 33 for the rest of eternity? Listen, I don't know, okay? I don't know if you're gonna look like you're 85 when you get to heaven. I don't know if God's gonna roll back some years and help us out. I'm not sure. The Bible doesn't tell us. I would, 
listen, I don't want to look worse than this, so I'm fine to go now. (laughs) Some of you are like, I wonder if I'll have hair. Can I say this? You know what the Bible promises? He makes all things new. He makes all things new. Isn't that wonderful? You get your hair back. (laughs) God bless you. Here's what's going to happen. God is going to put all of the enemies under Jesus' feet. You see, angels are the, look at verse 10, work of his hands. And the Bible lets us know they were created to be ministering spirits. They're created. Now, let me tell you something. They've done a great job. They have done a great job of doing what God wants them to do. He's the creator, and they're the creation. He's the king, and they are the workers. It's just the way that it is. And all throughout the Bible, they've done a really great job. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 19, two angels show up in Sodom and Gomorrah? They're trying to get Lot and his wife and children out of there. And Lot and his wife are lingering, the Bible says, in Genesis 19. They're kind of like, I don't want to leave Lot. I don't want to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. I like the party scene. And the angel grabs Lot's hand and pulls him out. Good job, Mr. Angel. And we don't even know who he is. Then in Exodus chapter 14, in Exodus chapter 23, you can look it up later, God sent angels before and behind to protect the children of Israel. It's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. In Numbers chapter 22, an angel had a different scene. This angel is standing in an alley (laughs) and he is ready to put Balaam down. Balaam was a nasty little prophet, and he was trying to get the children of Israel to sin, and he was getting money from Balak the king to curse the children of Israel. (laughs) God didn't like that. So God sent an angel. (laughs) Okay, it's time. And the donkey's walking down, and the donkey stops, and Balaam slaps the donkey. Come on! And Donkey starts and stops again because the donkey sees the angel and the angel's going to get rid of Balaam. So finally, Balaam hits the donkey again. The donkey turns around and goes, will you stop hitting me? (laughs) Now, you know what amazes me about the whole story? Balaam talked back to the donkey. That, to me, is the miracle. Like, are you kidding me? And Balaam hears from the donkey There's an angel in front, and he's going to get rid of you, and I'm trying to save your life. So God used the donkey to get a message across to Balaam because he never wanted to put Balaam down. He wanted Balaam to stop doing what he was doing. It's a pretty cool angel. I don't know if you know this, but angels can cook. 1 Kings chapter 19, you can look it up for yourself. An angel made some bread for Elijah. And let me tell you something, this bread was a power bar because Elijah didn't eat again for 40 days. Talk about angel food cake. (laughs) Where do you think that came from? Okay, 40 days. Angels can cook. Listen to this. One angel, 2 Kings, you can look it up. This is a true story. Angels are great. 
2 Kings chapter 19, one angel kills 185,000 Assyrians overnight. Wow. I would be tired around 200, okay? Not this angel. That's a big angel. There's an angel in Revelation, and I want you to try this. Go to the beach and try it. There's an angel in Revelation where one of his feet is in the water, the ocean, and the other foot is in the land, completely dry. I want you to go to the ocean. I want you to try it. See if you can do it. I bet you can't. You at least got to be 30 feet tall to have one foot in the ocean and one foot on the land. You can't, I got to stop this. You, you, you can't do it. That's a big angel. Angels are great. Jesus is greater. And angels are sent forth to minister. And this leads us to their greatest ministry. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Don't worry, I'm only doing a few verses. Therefore, here's his conclusion. We must give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard lest we drift away. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Islam. For if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect or were careless with so great a salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us. He concludes himself. This is why I don't believe Paul wrote this letter. It was confirmed to us by those who heard him. These are second generation believers. Paul saw Jesus. So he couldn't have said it was confirmed to us by other people. Paul saw Jesus. He got a vision of the Lord. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Stop there if you would for just a moment. Everything angels have said that have come from God, every angel that came from God and had a message from God came to pass. When the angel came and said, Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed, Lot, get out of here. Guess what? Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. When the angels showed up to Joshua and said, march around the walls, this is God's plan, march around the walls and they will come down. Guess what? In seven days, the walls came down. When the angels showed up to Manoah and his wife and said that your wife who can't bear a child is gonna have a child, guess what? Child's name was Samson. And what he's saying here is, when the angels showed up and said to Mary, you are gonna give birth to the Son of God. Just as the angel said, she gave birth not to the brother of an angel. She gave birth to the Son of God. That's the truth. And when the angels said to the disciples who were staring up in the ascension, when she said, when they, he said to them, what are you looking up in heaven for? He told you he's coming back. Let me tell you something. He's coming back. He's coming back. So let me tell you what he's doing. He's warning believers, don't be careless with your faith. Don't drift away. 
These are second-generation believers. Don't drift away. They're struggling because of persecution. They're wondering, how long, Lord? Even the martyrs in Revelation at the fifth seal, they asked Jesus, how long? And Jesus says, until the number of you is complete. He tells them there's still more yet to die. These Christians are struggling. And the writer tells them, and he's telling us, though you're struggling, don't drift away. My uncle had a little skiff, and he used to let me use it all the time when we were living in the Bahamas with my kids. And the skiff, a little Boston whaler, a little 17-foot Boston whaler. And one time I went to Rose Island, which is where I'd take the kids. And I anchored, uh, excuse me, I didn't anchor the boat. I just kind of pulled it up on the beach. Tide came up. Me and the kids were playing. I had a long swim to the Boston Whaler. My kids look and go, you're going to swim out there? There's sharks, Dad. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I'm good. I'm terrified of sharks. And they're, like, reminding me that there's sharks out there. But I wasn't smart. I didn't anchor the boat. All I did was kind of drift it on in. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I told you I was going to use the time. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Turn with me there. You've got to see this. Now, please don't drift away. Stay with me. This is the point. This is where I've been leading to. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says, Paul has heard from the Spirit of God. And here's what the Spirit says. In latter times, some will depart, drift away from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits, fallen angels, and doctrines of demons. I have never seen so much division in the church in my lifetime. Church, listen to me. I have never seen so much division in the church over the truth of the Word of God. We are living in the age of Aquarius. And if you're old enough to know that song, you're old. We are living in the age of Aquarius. And we cannot be surprised, as the Spirit has made it very clear to Paul, this would happen. And it would happen in the church. Go with, over me to 2 Timothy. I want you to see this. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Go over there with me. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. 2 Timothy 3, just go a few pages over to the right. 2 Timothy 3, 13. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. But evil men, he's speaking to people in the church. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Is it not happening in the church today? People are bringing all kinds of demonic doctrines into the church. But look at verse 14. Listen to what Paul says in verse 14. But you must continue in the things which you've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures. They come from God. 
which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Hey, church, I believe the church is drifting. We haven't anchored. I'm not talking about Calvary South Bay, but I believe the global church is drifting because of the New Age movement. The doctrine of fallen angels has infiltrated the church. Neil T. Anderson used to be the chairman of the the theological department at Talbot School of Theology. Listen to what he says. You'll see it on the screen. The New Age movement, it's not seen as a religion, but a new way to think and understand reality. It's very attractive to the natural man who's become disillusioned with organized religion. You see, the New Agers embrace a very deep sense of spirituality. Yoga. Very spiritual. They embrace it. They want to connect with the spiritual flow of the universe. We are all one. In fact, they believe that all is God, Anderson says. God's not a he, but an it. We're all gods. And if you would only come to that enlightenment, if you'd only come to the enlightenment that you're a god, then we can accept everyone's truth as their truth since they're the god of their life. Unity is the ultimate goal, no matter what you believe, because, well, it's your truth. You're your God. And if you would just be enlightened to this, then you can embrace and love everyone the way that we think you should. Secondly, Anderson says this. He desires spirituality, but doesn't want to give up his materialism, deal with any moral problems, or come under anyone's authority. I get to live as I want. I get to live as I want, and I can be as spiritual as I want. Don't tell me how to live my life. I'll live it however I want to live it. Hey, church, fallen angels are infiltrating the church with a message that sounds like peace, love, and the pursuit of happiness at all costs. Because if you don't embrace who I am, then you're not loving. If you don't accept my sin, then you're not loving. It's infiltrated the church. Let's just get along. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you hold to. Just get along. Accept what anyone feels or thinks and let the creation tell the creator what's best for them. It's infiltrated the church. Rest assured, this is the doctrine of fallen angels. And we are being warned, do not drift away from the truth. Let us not forget that hell will always present itself as an angel of light. Jesus calls them sheep, excuse me, wolves in sheep's clothing. So the writer is encouraging the church of the 21st century. Listen, give earnest heed to the things that you've heard. 
Let the word of God guide you. Default to what God has to say about every issue impacting the church. The church is the pillar and the ground of truth. Christ is our foundation. We stand on his authority, not a fallen angel's. And no matter the wind and wave of doctrine, I don't care if it's a cat five hurricane comes through the holes of the church. Hold on to the pillar of the truth. Hold on to the pillar of the truth so as it blows through the church, you will be able to stand. And here's the beauty. If you let go of the pillar and you got swept away by some wind and wave of a fallen angel's doctrine, Jesus says, confess your sin. I'll be faithful and just to forgive you of all kinds of foolishness. He invites you to come back. Church, the greatest way for you to win win those over who have drifted away is to hold on to the pillar of truth, not compromise for the sake of unity. Amen? Father, I want to thank you today that there are Christians who have decided in Iran we are holding on to the pillar of truth despite the persecution, despite going to jail. In our modern secular world, this is still happening. Thank you that they set an example for us to hold on to the pillar of truth. And Lord, help us. Because it seems like a Cat 5 hurricane is blowing through the halls of the church. And we need your strength to hold on to the pillar of truth. Father, help us to default not to the doctrine of some fallen angel. Help us not to drift away. But give us the power and give us the strength to stand. Would you just stay in an attitude of prayer and I don't care if you look at me or if you bow your head, close your eyes and fold your hands. If you're here tonight and you didn't anchor, you just decided to kind of pull up on the shore but you didn't know high tide was coming. And you drifted away. I don't care if you have to swim in shark-infested water. It's worth going to get the boat so you can get home. Jesus has made a way. Because the wonderful thing, he swam through the waters for you. And all you have to do is ask. And he'll turn the boat on. And he'll come right to you. The Bible makes a promise. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. If you drift, if you've been caught in a sin, if you drifted, if you've been wondering, well, I mean, we really should be loving, so should we be embracing sin in the church? 
come home. And put your anchor on the Lord Jesus Christ. So let it be between you and the Lord. Let it be between me and the Lord. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.